2 Kings chapter 6. While you're opening there, let's pray. Can we do that? I'd like us to have a moment where we bow our heads and close our eyes. We mentioned a minute ago that it's, it's been a rough week. And there are maybe some of you that are just really struggling. I don't know what you've been through. I don't know what it took to even get you here to church. Or, or if, you know, yeah, I don't know what's going on in your life, but God does. So let's take a moment now. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Can we do that? And I would like to ask you to invite God to speak to you. If there are things in your life that you know you just need to turn from, just confess that to the Lord right now. So with every head bowed and every eyes closed, I, I want you to just invite God to do business with God. Lord, would you speak? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, in his authority, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would speak to us, that you would bless us, that you would help us, God, that you would work in us through your word. God, that you would do all that you want to do, that you would accomplish all that you want to accomplish in us. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, fill this place with your spirit, that you would speak, and it would be you that's speaking through your word to our hearts, and that we would respond with obedience, Father. In the name and authority of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So guys, you may not know this, but Thanksgiving is, is coming right up. Next week, I'm excited. We're going to have a fun family morning as a church family. We're going to just praise the Lord. We're going to give thanks for all that he's done next week. But what comes after Thanksgiving? There's a holiday I can't remember. It's, it's like, uh, starts with a C. Oh yeah, Christmas, that's it. Christmas is coming up, and if you're around kids at all, you've already kind of begun the discussion. Okay, little Susie, what's on your Christmas list this year? You know, have you had that conversation yet? Have you begun talking with your grandkids or your kids about Christmas? We have. I remember when my son... He's 11 now, but I remember when he wanted a dump truck for Christmas. What do you want, son, for Christmas? I want a train, or I want a truck, or a tractor. You know, you spend, like, to get a really nice tractor, like $20. You remember that? Remember those days? A couple weeks ago, we were talking. He said, you know what I want for Christmas, Dad? He brought it up, by the way, not me. <laughs> okay, son, what do you want for Christmas? Night vision goggles. <laughs> what? Night vision goggles? I don't even know how much those cost. I, 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 but, I, and what are you going to use those for, you know? But he really wants night vision goggles. And, and I was thinking about it. We have these things, and, and it, it was years ago. The only people that ever had heard of night vision goggles were military people. Nowadays, they've become so mainstream, you could order them on Amazon, and they'll be at your house in two days. How crazy is that? Night vision goggles, they allow you to see in the dark. They allow you to see something that if you didn't have those, you couldn't see it. It's, it's just, it's pitch black. With night vision goggles, you could play golf at midnight. It'd be difficult to see the ball, but yeah, you could. 
Night vision goggles, you could see birds and animals and all kinds of things going around at night that you couldn't see without those goggles. This morning, the message that God's given me to speak to us this morning, the passage that, that we have for this morning, is about God vision goggles. You see, with God vision goggles, I'm not saying like they're actual goggles, but if, if we had that ability to see God's hand, to see God's work, to see God and what he's doing in every situation, our lives would be transformed. You see, with, with the Thousand Oaks shooting last week, or the fires that are going on, or even the sudden death of a close friend, we need God vision goggles. Because even in tragedy, even in suffering, there's something that God is doing. The problem is few of us have the ability to see that. Few of us have the ability to, to actually look at something that's difficult and see, wow, this is God working. And we lose heart. And we lose hope when that happens. So we're going to look this morning at one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's a, it's a funny story. I hope you enjoy this. But it's a story that's a powerful example of somebody who was faithful and who had that ability to see God in the most desperate and extreme circumstances. He could see God. In fact, he could see God and his ways and his, his spiritual realm so clearly that he saw that more clearly than he saw what was right in front of him. And that's the story of Elisha. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to read verses 8 through 23. Verses 8 through 23. Is it possible to have God vision goggles? I know that sounds weird. But is it possible to see beyond the temporal? To see beyond the physical or the natural into the eternal? Into the spirit. Is it possible for us to do this? Look with me in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. It says, and I'm reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. It says, Once the king of Syria was war once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass through this place, for the Syrians are going down there. Okay, this is espionage in the early days. All right? This is before the Cold War, the CIA, and all that other stuff. This is how they did it back then. They would say, okay, we're going to put our, our troops here, and we know that the king of Israel is going to bring his troops right through there, and we're going to ambush them, we're going to attack them. And so this is how they would try to maneuver and try to get advantage for war. Okay? And so here's this king, and he's saying, these are all our plans, and we'll do this. But in verse 9, the man of God, that's Elisha, he sent word to the king of Israel, hey, beware that you don't pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. In verse 10, and the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. And, and thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. So this kept happening. That the Syrians, the, the Arameans, they would come there and they would encamp against the army of Israel. But Elisha would say, hey, hey, king of Israel, you don't want your troops there. Take them this way or do this or that. Or They kept missing each other. 
And so finally, the king of Syria, the king of Aram, depending on your translation, it says in verse 11, And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who, it, who of us is for the king of Israel? Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? He's really saying, who's the traitor here? Who's going around telling the king of Israel our plans? Because this is no coincidence that this keeps happening. Are you following with me? Verse 12. And one of his servants said, No one, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your very own bedroom. Now that's kind of weird. But it's probably hyperbole to say, Elisha knows everything that's going on. He's a prophet of God, and he knows what you're doing. He knows your plans. And he communicates to Israel what's going on. And in verse 13, the king says, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. So I'm going to get Elisha, is what he's saying. I don't know about the logic of trying to capture somebody who knows everything that you're about to do. Maybe not a smart idea, but this guy's not thinking like that. Maybe he just doesn't understand the situation. And he said, go seize him. And it was told to him, okay, Elisha is at Dothan. So in verse 14, he sent their horses and chariots, a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God, that means the the, the servant of Elisha, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Can you imagine that? Elisha said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. All of a sudden, the servant, his eyes are open. Elisha prays for him, and the servant's eyes are open, and he sees, whoa. There's horses of fire, chariots of fire, an army of fire all around us. So the Lord opened his eyes in verse 18. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please, strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness and in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way. This is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Syria, or or Samaria, I'm sorry. And as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open their eyes, the eyes of these men, so they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. And Samaria is the capital city of Israel at this time. So they're surrounded. They've just been led into this big trap. And they're, as an army, they're just completely undone, and they're completely vulnerable and as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? 
And he answered, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you've taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drank or drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Imagine this scene. The king of Aram, or the king of Syria, keeps, keeps trying to, to take over Israel, keeps trying to, to take from them. And Elisha, because of his connection with God, is able to thwart all of the plans of the king of Syria. So the king of Syria comes after Elisha. And Elisha wakes up one morning, and actually the servant of Elisha wakes up one morning, and he sees an army surrounding their city. He sees an army with chariots, with spears, with arrows, and, and bows, and swords, and it is not a pretty picture. It's a big deal. We're in big trouble. And so he says, Elisha, Elisha, there's an army coming after us. And Elisha says to him, oh, don't worry about it. We've, we've got way more on our side than on their side. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine seeing that or hearing that from, from Elisha saying, okay, I know you can do some crazy stuff, but what you're talking right now is just wacko. What do you mean? It's just, it's you and me. And there's an army coming after us and there's more on our side than on their side. And then Elisha prayed, Lord, would you open his eyes? And his eyes were opened and he saw that what Elisha said was absolutely true, that they had more on their side than the enemy did. And what's more is, would you rather have a normal horse and chariot, or would you rather have a horse and chariot made of fire? Which one is more deadly? Which one would you want on your side? I would want the horse and chariot made of fire, because that's just awesome. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Oh, You've got an army of just normal chariots and fire. I mean, chariots and horses. I've got one of fire. So which is better? What are you going to do with that? What do you do? How, how do you fight chariots made of fire? Arrow just goes right through. It's, it's fire. It sounds like something from a Marvel movie, doesn't it? This is what was going on. And, and, and what's funny about this is the servant sees... And Elisha prays and he says, God, would you strike this army blind? And they all went blind. So there were people seeing and people going blind. And, and that's happening through this whole story. And, and Elisha says to them, this isn't where you want to be. Let me take you where you want to go, where you need to go. And you'll see who you want to see. And he leads them to Samaria. And they're surrounded, and it's, it, it, it's a vulnerable situation for the Syrian enemy army. And they're there, and they're stuck, and they're in a horrible situation. And the king of Israel says, Elisha, should I kill them? Should I kill them? Like, he repeats it, which to me means that he doesn't think of, he can't think of anything else. What should I do with these people? Should I kill them? Well, uh, should I kill them? I, I can't think of anything else to do. And Elisha says, no, you don't kill them. You feed them. And then you send them home. Isn't that weird? 
But what was interesting about it is at the end of the story, the, the, the last verse in the passage is, and they didn't want to come and mess with them anymore. And I can understand that. I can understand that part. The first thing that I want to point out to you guys, and this is something that, that's really special about Elisha, is God blesses those with a tenacious desire to see him. Where did Elisha get this ability to see God? Where did he get these God vision goggles? Where did this come from? He had this ability to see what wasn't there physically. He had an ability to see God's hand in a desperate and, and difficult situation. Where did that come from? Flip over with me to 2 Kings chapter 2. Now this is an awesome passage. If you want to study the, the, the life of Elisha, it's amazing. You see, Elisha was the servant to Elijah. And Elisha served Elijah well, and he did it for some time. And, and by being his servant, he was getting him coffee. He was doing his laundry. He was, he was actually a servant. He was his assistant. He did the things for Elijah to make his life easier and to allow Elijah to focus on God and the, the things of being a prophet. And Elisha went through this faithfully. And there came a time in chapter 2 of 2 Kings where it was time for Elijah to go back home. You know what I mean, to, to go to be with the Lord. And what's interesting is if you read 2 Kings chapter 2, you'll see that several different times people came up to Elisha to discourage him. And they'd say, well, Elisha... Looks like Elijah's going back to, to be with God or he's moving on. God's going to take him. And so all of these prophets, they had access to God. They had a closeness with God. And all of these prophets were coming to Elisha saying, hey, you're, it's a bummer for you, isn't it? Your master's going, uh, he, he's going to be with the Lord. And Elisha would say, shush, be quiet. Don't worry about it. And Elijah even said to Elisha, several different times he said, stay here, I'm going to go to the next place and then God's going to take me. And Elisha said, no way, I'm going to go with you, I'm not going to leave you, I'm going to stay with you. Multiple times this happened. The other prophets tried to discourage him. Elijah even said, stay here, don't go with me. And he said, no way, I'm going with you to the very end, I'm going to be with you to the very end. And he stayed with him. He had this tenacity. He had this persistence. And he didn't give up. Look with me in chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. I just want to read these few verses. Finally, when they had crossed the Jordan River, Elijah said to Elisha, Okay, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Can you imagine the audacity of that request? Elijah is the guy who called down fire from heaven and fought the prophets of Baal. Elijah is the guy who stayed true, even though many of, most of the time it was just him and God, and Elijah was faithful. And Elisha is saying to him, I want a double portion of your anointing. I want a, a double portion of, of the, the spirit that God has given you. I want double of that. And Elijah looks at him 
And he says in verse 10, you have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they went, they still went on and talked. And behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. In verse 12, and Elisha saw it. Did you see the see, see, saw? See, saw? Did you see that? Elisha saw it. And he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And then he saw him no more. Then he took a hold of his own clothes and he tore them into two pieces. And he, he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Visualize this. And then he took that cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and he struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over the water. He went over the Jordan. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, that means they were on the other side watching this happen. You get that? When these prophets saw the parting of the Jordan, they saw they saw this and they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Now here's what happened. Over and over again, Elisha had to do mundane, basic tasks as the assistant to Elijah. Time and time again, he had to be faithful in the small things. You see, but Elisha was so set on being somebody that God would bless, on being somebody who would have a special anointing, a special connection with God, that he wouldn't let anything dissuade him. If that means un unclogging a toilet or, or cleaning floors or, or doing whatever it was, he was faithful to do it. And then when it came time for Elijah to go, Elisha was faced with discouragement time and time again. Even his own master was saying, Elisha, just stay here. What if he had stayed there? All the other prophets stayed on the other side of the Jordan. What if Elisha had just stayed there? It was only after that final time where he crossed the Jordan with Elijah that Elijah finally said to him, okay, what would you like me to do for you? It was only after that persistence, that tenacity, that longing, I want God, I want more, I want more of this, that Elijah finally asked him, okay, what is it that you want? And he said, I want a double portion. You had this amazing connection with God, this amazing faith. I want double. Is that greedy? Not when it comes to God. You see, when it comes to God and our relationship with God, God blesses those with a tenacious desire to see him. God blesses those with that. It, it's, it holds up all through scripture. You look at it, you see David in Psalm, 24 verse, uh, Psalm 27 verse 4, he says, The one thing I seek, 
The thing I desire most is to live in the house of the Lord daily to inquire in his temple and behold his perfection. And then Paul in Philippians 3 verse 10, he says, all I want is to know him and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead and to suffer with him knowing him in his sufferings, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection of the dead. These people, they had this desire, this relentless pursuit of God. They wanted a special relationship with God. They wanted to see God. And what does Hebrews eleven six say? You guys know this, this verse, right? Hebrews eleven six says, For without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Do you understand? Your heart should be to see God, to seek God and his kingdom. We see this all through the scripture. And there's people that kind of do it to some extent. Yeah, I come to church. But God rewards those who diligently, who with their heart, who battle through the obstacles, who burst through those walls and say, I want God more than anything. I want him more than anything. I'm going to pursue and follow him no matter what. I want him. I want him more than anything. God blesses those people that have that tenacious desire to see him. The next thing that we see in this, and this is interesting, is God doesn't give sight to everybody. The next thing in your outline, if you would write that in, God doesn't give sight to everybody. Some people see and some people don't see. Who sees? The ones that are tenacious, the ones that are persistent, the ones that are passionately seeking God, those are the ones who see. You see in, in Hebrews 11, you see this over and over again. Uh, but in Hebrews eleven thirteen, it says it's talking about the people of faith, the people who are faithful. And it says that they saw a kingdom. They saw it from far away, but they were working for a kingdom, working towards a kingdom, not built with human hands. You see, they saw the promises from afar, but they, they were willing to sacrifice this for that because they had this ability through faith to see what God was doing. And they had this sight. But God doesn't give sight to everybody. We always want God to start with sight. We want him to say, okay, God, I want to see you, and then I'll believe. God rarely, rarely rarely starts like this. It starts with faith and obedience and then comes sight. It starts with a choice of volition on our part to believe. Sight is a reward for faith. What are we missing out on because we get sidetracked or because we settle for so much less I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's talking about, I would do anything to bring people to Christ is what he's saying. I, I would become all things to all people so that by all means I would save some. And then he says something that's a little weird. It's a little difficult. He said, I, I 
beat my body into submission. What is he talking about? I beat my body into submission because those who run a race, only one can win it. So I want to run in such a way that I will, I will win the race. Many people run the race, only one gets the crown. I want to run in such a way that I get the crown. And what is he talking about? He's saying, I'm going to do whatever it takes to be that close to God, to be that in tune with God, to have that vision and closeness with God. I will do whatever it takes. I want to run in such a way. I want to, I want to obey in such a way. I want to invest my life into God in such a way that, that I'm way ahead of anyone else. It's not that I'm trying to be better than anyone. It's just I want that special connection with God. Many run the race. One get the prize. One gets the prize. Run in such a way to win. That means with your relationship with God. Pursue him with everything you've got. Because those are the people that get that special connection, that special closeness, that special anointing, that special faith from God. The last thing I wanted to point out, and this is just a side note. This is something I thought of. I, I, I can't really support this much, but look with me in chapter 6, verse 17. Chapter 6, verse 17, the eyes of the servant were open. Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened his eyes, and the young man, the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Who were the chariots of fire around? Never picked up on this until, until today. They're, they were around Elisha. Elisha was the point. He, he was the one that was protected by all of this. And it made me think back to, to 2 Kings chapter 2, and there's Elijah. And what was there in the presence of Elijah when he went up to be with the Lord? There was chariots of fire, and he went up in a whirlwind. He didn't ride in a chariot of fire. The chariots of fire were around him. And I'm wondering if, what if Elisha didn't realize it, but Elijah had chariots of fire around him the whole time. He just couldn't see it. Until that moment, God granted him vision. Until that moment, his tenacity and his persistence, his faith, had been rewarded by God. What if Elijah was walking all around, and in the moment of, you know, 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, when he's facing Jezebel, what if he just had chariots of fire around him all the time? I don't know. I can't really support that. But I'm saying, what if? What if Elisha always had chariots of fire, and from the moment of 2 Kings chapter 2, he had that vision, those God vision goggles that he could see, I'm okay. I'm good. God's got me surrounded. And so when the enemy forces came, it's okay, they're there, but I've got, I would, I'm putting my money on this army rather than that army. I'm going to go with the army made of fire every time. And he's saying, I would choose this army over that, and, and he, I'm good, I'm okay. Servant, relax. God, would you open his eyes? And God opened his eyes. Now here's another thing that I wanted to point out. That word, so. So, S-O. That's a word that we just gloss over, but I, I couldn't help 
seeing that this is repeated over and over and over again, that, that Elisha does something, so God does something. What does that word so mean? It has to do, it's a consequential word, right? I went running this morning, so I'm thirsty. I didn't actually go running this morning. I should have, but... Yeah, I, I did this, so this happened. It, it, it implies consequence, doesn't it? It, it implies a, a, a cause and effect. Elisha did this, so God did this. Elisha prayed for his servant. God, would you open his eyes? So God opened his eyes in verse 17. Do you have a relationship with God like that? Do you have a connection with God like that? You can you can to where you are so in tune with what God is doing and what he wants to do that you can pray something so God will do it Elisha prays for this guy that his eyes would be opened then he prays for these guys that their eyes would be closed so God blinded them and then he leads them to Samaria and he prays that their eyes would be opened, so God opened their eyes. You see, this is what I'm talking about. Most of us, did you know that God doesn't hear every prayer? Did you know that? There are people God does not listen to. In fact, in the Bible, we can actually see that there are some people whose prayers are, like, disgusting to God. Did you know that? Not everybody has sight. There are some people who are praying, but their hearts are so hard. They're not obeying God. They don't, they don't love God. They're not being called according to his purposes. They're not being led by him. And your prayers are not even answered. But in, in James, we see that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. That, that's fancy words for saying if you are close to God, if you are faithful to him, if you are making his purposes more important than your own, if you are living a life of tenacious desire to see him, your prayers matter to him, and he hears you, and he answers. And it may not be immediate, it may not be right now, but he hears and he responds. So, you act, so God acts. You pray, so God acts. Do you have this connection with God? Men, did you know the Bible actually says that if you mistreat your wives, God will not hear your prayers. It actually says that. If you're, if you're treating your wife poorly, you know, don't even bother praying. Because if you're not willing to turn from that, then God's not going to hear you. God doesn't give sight to everybody. There's not everybody that has that so sort of relationship with God. And the last thing I want to bring up, just really quickly, is that God is working on multiple levels. Write that in there. God is working on multiple levels. First of all, there's Elisha. God is working in Elisha's life in this. We see that. God is working through Elisha. But think of this whole story from the servant's perspective. Think of the counseling and therapy sessions that he would have had to go through after this took place. 
there was this army, and it was traumatic. He's going through PTSD because this army was coming, it was advancing, surrounding them. And then all of a sudden, he sees an army of fire that's there protecting them. What was God doing in this servant's life? And then you have the, the Syrian king. God was working in his life. He, he learned a valuable lesson that day. Okay, Elisha and God, there's something going on there. We need to stay away from that. There's the army of the Syrians. There's the king of Israel who is saying, Elisha, should, should I kill him? Should, should I kill him? And God was working in his life. And there was, there was the onlookers who were looking and, and saying, wow, this is, this is something significant going on. And they were paying attention to this. In your life, I want to just get real for a second. What is the difficulty that you're going through? It could be that you have a relative or a loved one that is facing addiction, that is facing something difficult, something hard, something that you would save them from if you could. There's so many things going on. Sometimes it just gets so overwhelming, doesn't it? I was talking with somebody just before the service that, that there's so many things that are happening right now, so many bad news things that it really can just be a weight and it really can just be overwhelming. What do we do? What do we do with that? Well, we need to remember that God is working in many different levels. He's working in your life. He's working in your loved one's life. He's working in all of these different areas, in all of these different ways. He's doing it to display his glory for those that have eyes to see. For those that have the faith to trust that he's working and he's doing something beautiful and he's doing something good. God is working on multiple levels. God is winning do you have that sort of relationship with God that you are so surrendered to him, that you are so in love with him, that when you pray, God responds? You see, if, if you're going through something right now and God is not answering your prayers, there's two possibilities. One is that you may be living in rebellion. There might be things in your life that you need to turn from and change and repent from. You may not be pursuing God with all your heart. And so why would God answer your prayers? Or it could be that you're surrendered to God, you're pursuing God, but you just need more persistence. You need more tenacity. You need to stick with it because in his time, he will answer. Those are the only two scenarios I see. Because if you are surrendered to God, he will give you his desires and the things you're praying for will be his will. It's just a matter of time. You see, Jesus said over and over again that if, if you pray for anything in my name, God will do it. You ever frustrated by that? What does that mean when Jesus said, if you pray for anything in my name, what is that? God will do it. Have you ever read that and been frustrated by that? John 15 is a perfect example of this. But in John 15, he's talking about those who remain connected to the vine. When you're close to God, when you're surrendered to him, when you're tenaciously pursuing and following God. 
He aligns your will with his. He aligns your vision with his. He gives you those God vision goggles. And anything you ask in his name, that means in line with Christ's authority. That means his will and his purposes. He will do it. He will restore that relationship. He will provide. He will come through. And God will do it. A beautiful example of this is Jesus on the cross. Do you guys know what God has done for you? Do you know what, how, how much he loves you? Do you know that? Listen. We have all sinned, every single one of us. But God loves us. He wants his creation back, and he came here to be one of us. That's what Jesus did when he was born Christmas. We're about to celebrate this. Jesus came to us, God in human form, living a perfect life so that he could perfectly represent us to a holy God. A holy God in human form representing us to a holy God on the throne. Jesus lived in our place, and he died in our place because the penalty for sin is death. That means separation from God. We all deserve it. We all deserve it. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why Jesus died on the cross. It wasn't him being murdered. It was him surrendering. It was him saying, I will take your place. Now, here's Jesus on the cross. Are you picturing this image? This is the God of the universe in human form, hanging on a cross, nails through his hands, bleeding out. And here's the God of the universe, the creator of everyone, hanging on a cross. And he was winning. He was winning. You see, it didn't look good. The disciples who were with Jesus all ran because this was a disaster. Everything they had hoped for was, was just crushed. And here's Jesus. He's on the cross. And they're destroyed. They're scattered. They're scared. Absolutely depressed. Absolutely discouraged. Devastated. And Jesus is on the cross winning through his death, his torture, his death. And three days later, his resurrection. This is how God works in our life. Did you know that? If you have eyes to see, he wants to do that in your life. If you will believe, if you will follow him with all your heart. You, you know, this whole Jesus thing, it's not about behavioral development. It's not about moral adjustments or you trying to get in line with what we think, you know, your shirt should be tucked in or your shoe should be polished or, or your hair should be a certain length. It's about a person. You see, I'm not trying to get you to agree with me. I'm trying to introduce you to a holy, amazing, wonderful person who loves you, who gave his life for you, who rose again from the dead and wants to show you the life that he has for you. A life sacrificed and surrendered fully to him. I want to end with this story. You know, I'm married, right? Got this amazing wife. Her name's Nicole. But I remember the day that I proposed to Nicole. There was a, uh, a funny story. It was kind of our first fight ever. You see, what happened is I had planned this amazing thing in San Francisco. And we were going to go to this great place and have a picnic 
and it was overlooking the, 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 the bay and the Golden Gate Bridge and all this stuff. And I had it all planned out. And my parents were there and we were going to have a special, special time there. And, and my parents like set up this picnic for us. And then they like got out of there and we were going to... Anyhow, I remember in the car, Nicole's sitting next to me. It's just her and I. And I, I said to her, sweetheart, let's, let's drive across the Golden Gate Bridge. She said, no. Don't want to do it. I was like, wait, no, it's, uh, we should do it. It's fun. We're here. Let's do it. And she's like, no, it costs money. I don't want to pay money. And plus it costs time, too. It takes time to get over there, and there's, there's traffic coming back, and it's like, you know, it's, it costs time and money. I don't want to do it. And I was like, you sure? <laughs> Let's do it. I really want to do it. I think we should do this. And she said, no, I don't want to do it. It's a bad idea. Let's just, you know, let's go over here. And I was like, no, we're going over here. She's like, are you serious? I don't want to do this. I said, no, we're going to do this. We're going to go. So we drive across and, you know, it worked out. Like her attitude adjusted and all this stuff. And she finally was like, okay, this is not so bad. It helped when we got out of the car and we walked over to this little bluff. And she saw this picnic there. And I uh, walked over and sat down at this picnic. She's like, what are you doing? Somebody had this. Somebody prepared that. I was like, oh, we can eat here. That's fine. And... Uh, so we ate our cheeseburgers, because that's how I do picnics. And uh, anyhow, and afterwards, I, I got down on one knee. There was this German couple over there that was taking pictures, and uh, I had no idea what they were doing there. They weren't part of the plan. But I remember proposing to her and asking her to marry me, and it was such a special, amazing moment. And she didn't want that at the time. But when I pulled out the ring, all of a sudden it was worth it. It was worth the extra money, it was worth the extra time, and I'm pretty sure she was happy with the whole thing. You see, that's what God allows into our lives. If we have the God vision goggles to see, things come into our life, it looks like this is just gonna cost me money, this is gonna cost me time, this is gonna cost me heartache, this is gonna, this is gonna hurt, this is horrible, I don't like this, I don't wanna do this, I don't wanna go across the bridge. But you see, what God is doing is something so much bigger if we have eyes to see. How do we get these God vision goggles? How do we get eyes to see? It's through a faith, it's through a heart, it's through a life that's saying, God, all I want is you. All I want is you. I'm gonna choose you today. I'm gonna choose you every day. Is that you?